0: I appreciate everything so much more now. I care so much more deeply now, and I want to. Uh, I want to give back as much as I can now. Where before,
1: I was just worried about getting through the day. You know. Welcome to Journeys Through Pulmonary Fibrosis, a podcast by Rinker Ingelheim. In each episode, we give a voice to a guest from the pulmonary fibrosis community who will share their experiences and stories with us. Together, we'll hear heartwarming and courageous stories from the people with this lung condition, their loved ones, and the doctors working tirelessly to support them. I'm Daniel Sinner, and I'll be your guide as we begin our journey through pulmonary fibrosis. Our guest today is Jim. He lives in Texas in the United States and has the rare lung condition rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease, or RAILD. He spent nearly three years seeking a correct diagnosis and was finally able to get a biopsy and was later diagnosed with RAILD. After witnessing the decline of his father from a similar disease, Jim was anxious about his own journey and pledged to not let the condition slow him down. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Initially, you were diagnosed with IPF, which was then identified as rheumatoid arthritis with interstitial lung disease. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about this condition and how it affected your day-to-day life?
0: Well, when I was initially diagnosed, I had been uh, suffering for two years prior with upper uh, respiratory, uh, walking pneumonia and other conditions. So I was in fairly bad shape. I was going to work every day and doing the thing and, uh, you know, just struggling to get through the days. And so basically just going to work, getting my day done, coming home, eating and going to sleep and just repeat after, you know, just keep doing it over and over. I finally couldn't go no more. And I broke down and went to the doctor and after a series of, uh, tests and everything, they finally, uh, took me, uh, found a nodule on my lung and once they discovered that, then it took off. So it was a, you know, it was a roller coaster ride up and down the whole time because when you're continuously sick for almost two years and nobody seems to know what's going on and you can't get rid of it, it just becomes part of your day-to-day life. So once I finally was diagnosed and uh, they finally figured out what was going on, things started changing from there.
1: You said things started changing from there. In what way did they start changing? Well,
0: when you don't know what's happening to you or your body or why you're unable to do the things you were doing before or why you're completely wore out at the end of the day and can't do nothing, it's good when the doctor finally comes to you and says, you know, this is uh, the diagnosis we're going with. And in my case, uh, my dad actually had suffered some of this. So it's also, it was a really tough diagnosis for me to take. But then on the other hand, I knew what I was up against.
1: After your IPF diagnosis, it then took you a further two years to be diagnosed with RAILD. What does that journey look like and how would you summarize it?
0: I had started meds and everything else for the uh, IPF. And uh, unfortunately, I went to see a specialist later on. And this is a hard part of the whole deal because once he seen me, he the doctors communicated with each other and he seen me and then he said, okay, well, this is an initial visit. I'm gonna send you on back to the house. We did some blood work, we did x-rays, we did everything we're supposed to do here. I'm gonna send you on back to the house and then I'll confer with your other pulmonologist. You know, I'll send them some notes. So, you know, being so naive and new at this, I didn't really know much more to do. So what I did is I went home and, uh, you know, I, you know, he said, I'll see you in a year. And I went home and I said, okay, well, I've got my second opinion now. And uh, what happened after that was I followed up with my other doctor three months and I followed up with him again, six months. I followed up with him again, nine months. And I know this is repetitive, but after a year, I went to see the other the specialist, and he told me the uh, first thing he said when he walked through the door is, did you see the rheumatologist? And I said, what rheumatologist? And he told me, well, I sent an email over to the other doctor, and don't know that you need to see a rheumatologist because, you know, you have a high RA factor, and uh, we think, you know, your whole issue might be an immune deal. And I said, well, nobody ever said nothing to me. And unfortunately, that's how, uh, you know, six months later, I did get in to see a rheumatologist. None of these doctors are easy to see. So you have to really schedule to get in to see them. And six months later, he confirmed it. And that's when I got my diagnosis of R.A. IODC. it was that was a tough, probably the toughest time uh, I have had to ever go through in a very frustrating time. Because here I am thinking I have this one condition and then later on I'm diagnosed with another
1: condition. It must feel really frustrating when you're going back for all these regular appointments and you're determined to get a diagnosis to be seen. Having seen your father go through a similar, live with a similar disease. How do you feel looking back about how difficult it was for you just to get a label on the symptoms you were feeling.
0: Well, I run the gamut of emotions, believe me. I mean, from anger uh, to denial. I mean, once they came down with this second uh, diagnosis, I actually went back to the uh, primary doctor, uh, pulmonologist, and asked him what his opinion was. I mean, you know, I mean, tell me, you diagnosed me with this, and here they're telling me I got this. And he basically said, you know, that's what they do 24-7 over there at the hospital. So, you know, we're going to have to – you're going to to stick with what they say, uh, you know. And he owned up to the whole deal. And, you know, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good when you're going through something like that because I was naive. Now, today I look back on it as a learning curve to make sure that your doctors are communicating with each other and you do your due diligence and follow up on them. So from that point on, I definitely started – Checking up on my summaries and my medical records and my visits, uh, the notes they were taking. And I I really realized then, I think more than anything, I realized then that if I don't uh, advocate for myself uh, while in the doctor's office, then, you know, there could be a slip up. So I'll make sure uh, today they're all on the same page. It was a, definitely a, a hard lesson to learn, sort of say.
1: What advice would you give to other patients who are? going to see multiple doctors or even the same doctor in order to get a proper diagnosis to ensure they don't follow or try not to follow the same journey that you followed? It's so
0: hard to think about it now because back then you're still kind of in a a cloud and a, a, a fog sort of say, you know, here you've been diagnosed once and then turned around again and it's something else and the uh, only thing I can speak on is my experience. is It's best to make sure that you're uh, tracking your symptoms uh, and you're tracking uh, your your behaviors, you know, how you eat and your shortness of breath, those kind of things, and, and you're communicating the best you can with whoever you're seeing, and you're being truthful. I mean, too many of us go into the doctor's office and try to hide this and that you got to tell them the truth all the way because, I mean, they're going based on what you tell them. And then you have to follow up with each and every doctor you have because from the primary care physician to the specialist and anything in between those two, including your GI doctor or whoever else you may be seeing, they're all uh, working on the same uh, page, sort of say, uh, via the notes that's been entered into the system. So looking back on it all, I mean, when you're naive and you don't know no better, the best thing to do is uh, get with some folks uh, that can help you, uh, you know, and mentor you and get you going along. And, And because being an advocate, most of us don't look at it like, you know, I need to go in here and know what I'm talking about. A lot of us look at it like I need to find out what's wrong with me and then I can start working on doing what I need to do to fix it. And then there's a, another group of people that just want the doctor to fix what's wrong with them and the least amount of effort possible for on their end. So it takes a lot of effort. So you need to find a, some kind of a group or whatever to make sure that uh, you're getting the best advice possible.
1: What role did the groups pay during your journey? I'm
0: forever grateful. I got to tell you, I'm a, I'm a blue collar guy. Me and my wife, we've worked all our lives. We've done everything we can to, uh, you know, get ahead in the world, raise our kids, put them through school and all that stuff. And then, you know, you get in your 50s and 60s and boom, you have something hit you. It's tough. And uh, so the group, I mean, and of course, it, it was a Google thing for me. Uh, you know, they tell you you got a disease and you go home and Google it or whatever. But I started thinking, you know, There's got to be people out there like me. And when I started looking for groups and support, I run across a couple of pulmonary fibrosis foundation and, you know, American Lung Association, all the brand brand names. But I also found two local support groups that were close to my home. And I was able to go meet with patients just like me eye to eye. And those are some of the best friends I have today.
1: You say that it's hard to understand how someone feels unless you you know, walk in their shoes. That must be very difficult for you, having seen your father live with PF pulmonary fibrosis, and then to be told that you have it. What did that moment feel like when you were given that diagnosis?
0: Oh, well, I felt like I was going to die in six months. I mean, there's just no other way I can say it. I watched it, uh, when my dad was diagnosed with it, I mean, he was towards the end stage. So the only part I ever knew of it was when he got diagnosed and uh, and then I realized, you know, some of the things that they were having him do, <clears throat> they were starting to have me do like with the spirometers and, you know, the blood works and all that stuff. And I took dad to all his, his uh, all his doctor's appointments, including all his appointments. So, I mean, uh, I knew in detail what was ahead of me. And, uh, yeah, the day they diagnosed me with PF, uh, IPF, uh, me and my wife walked out of that place. Uh, and, um, uh, we got in the car and we were driving home and I told her, uh, in so many words that I'm going to do everything in my power to be as around as long as I can, because I love you. And, um, uh, that's what we've been doing since that day. So uh we had to uh arm ourselves and uh you know everything changed that day. Everything in my life changed that day. I mean, the way I look at everything, the way I see everything, it didn't change immediately. It took it 6 months to a year for me to clear through the fog, but uh you know life became very uh uh fragile. For me and uh, then it became uh, something that I wanted to make sure I got every bit I could out of
1: When you talk about clearing through the fog and dealing with feeling fragile can you describe for people who haven't been through the experience that you've been through, what does that feel like?
0: It's numb, it's numbing it's like it's almost like have you ever had somebody tell you something and you're like, there's no way. I can't believe that. And it just it just sinks in so deep that, you know, it's not even like your feet touch the ground sometimes. I mean, I I, I look back on it and I don't even remember how we drove home. I don't even remember getting home. It's like I passed out on the way home and we just got home. It was one of them deals that where you knew – uh That was a bad diagnosis and even worse prognosis. And uh, so, you know, you knew you needed to do something quick and it was on you. So the whole thing about it is it's on you. I mean, my wife couldn't save me. She could support me. My doctor could only help me as long as I was willing to do what I could do. And it just all hits you in in a slow motion type deal to where you know one day you're still hearing the doctor tell you what you have and you know it's time to put the christmas lights up and stuff like that it's six months later you know you don't even realize time's going by it's just like one day and then you snap at, you come out of it and when i came out of it <clears throat> you know i came out of it and it was one of them deals the word, i get emotional still thinking about it because when i came out of it I was out of shape all them years. I was fatigued, I was out of shape. And I don't know what happened, but I just decided, you know, I'm going to go down to the local park here about a mile down the road. And I drove down there. I walk down there now, but I drove down there. and I said, I'm going to start walking around the park. And that's when I started coming out of it, when I started walking around the park. So, you know, I couldn't even go a full mile around the park, but that was the start. It's just a tough time. And I tell you, when you're going through that, no matter what condition you have, you really, the first thing you need to do is find somebody that you can talk to other than those that are really close to you. I mean, like somebody that's going through kind of the same thing, a support group or whatever, but you got to find somebody, a pastor or whatever it be. You need to find somebody that you trust that you can talk to and get that stuff out of you.
1: Was it talking to someone that got you out of that very dark spiral and to start taking literally your first steps to walking in and finding this, this new change in perspective from being controlled by your diagnosis, the label of your diagnosis, and yeah, then this awesome. point at which Yeah, and, and then this point at which you decided, no, I'm I'm walking on my own, I'm leading a different life.
0: That's that's so true. I mean, the disease does overtake you and, you know, you feel like I'm at the mercy of this condition. And that's what you have to do. You have to break free of it. And once you break free of it, then you got to stick with it. You know, it's one of them deals to, to where you have to once you start seeing some improvement. So just because you're diagnosed with a chronic disease doesn't mean you can't improve in other ways but you know when they tell you you have a chronic lung disease one of the first things that's come up is getting a transplant and that was my line of thinking i said well you know uh, i'm you know 70 80 pounds overweight and i'm gonna probably need a transplant not knowing no better and uh probably be on oxygen like dad was not too long now and all that so i'll get out here and start hitting the pavement and, and walking and that's when i started regaining a little control of me and uh, deciding that I might not have complete control over my disease, but I have the ability to monitor and track my disease. Not only do I have the ability to monitor and track my disease, but I have the ability to monitor and track what I eat, how many steps I take a day and how much exercise I'm able to do and all those things and see how they benefit and pay off for me. And that's what I started doing. And the benefits, of course, the first three years there were, enormous I was in such bad shape I I had great gains physically which helped me pay off in my lung function now that I'm pretty much stabilized in my weight and everything else you still have to go do the walking and all that so you still have to put the work in and your gains and losses are not as much but you still know where you're at so
1: it sounds like you're very in control of your body and your your day-to-day Um, Very in control, a lot more than than most people. I wonder. It sounds like you're able to do a lot with the things you're doing on a day to day basis. So how do how do your symptoms of RAILD show up in your day to day life?
0: Well, the number one thing that shows up in my day to day life is fatigue, and uh, I do have a dry cough. If it's non productive, that does I do cough. So I'll have not spells of it, but it, it comes and goes, sort of say. Uh, I do wheeze or have rails or crackles, whatever you want to call it. That does happen to me. and it's it, The crackles and the wheezing is the most irritating thing in the world because there's like a feather in your throat. You cannot get it out. And, uh, and you know, so if I overdo it, so if I – right now I'm in a, a slow period where, you know, I'm not walking near as much as I was, but I'm walking some. Uh, but the reason I had to back off is because I went out and overdid it and, uh, two or three weeks ago, I went out and did too much. And uh, it, uh, and it, it puts me down for it. Don't knock me out or nothing. Don't put me in bed forever. But I mean, it, it literally, uh, saps the energy out of me and I have to, you know, uh, reenergize sort of say, and the only way I can reenergize is by resting. You have to rest. If you don't get your rest, then you pay for it. That's all there is to it. So yeah, my symptoms are fatigue, shortness of breath. When I really get extreme on the exercise, wheezing or uh, crackles. And, you know, and the other one is the mental part of it, the emotional part of where, you know, you got this weight on your shoulders all the time. It's not going away. You know, I, I've told my doctors over and over again, you know, did you get it right? Did you get it right? Because, you know, I know so many people that's got this disease and I've met with them in groups and everything. And, you know, a lot of them are on oxygen. A lot of them are waiting being listed for transplant and all that. And, you know, here I am four or five years in or basically four years in. And I, I consider myself a lot more than four years in. I consider myself seven to eight years in. I just didn't get diagnosed to four years. And uh, here's all these folks. Uh, so, but, you know, the good thing about knowing these people And seeing these people and talking to these people socially and in person when we're able to meet we haven't been at a meeting a year but the good thing about doing that is i know what's in front of me and i know how people are handling other people besides me are handling it and that's the biggest deal about having a support group or people that suffer a condition like you because even though i might seem pretty good and in control of my disease right now i'm not going to be that way forever and i've got a bunch of people that live right around me that have traveled the road I'm on and, they, and they're in front of me and uh, they're they're kind of showing me the
1: way to go. You know? It sounds like you've got a really great support network around you that have helped you through this journey and you've obviously helped them through theirs. Aside from the people around you, how has the diagnosis affected your outlook on life and what do you now do differently? Well, it's changed my... <laughs>
0: it's a change the way I see life entirely so and like I say I'm a blue collar guy so most of the time I most of the time up to about four years five years ago I spent working excuse me and that was one of the first things to go was the working so so now that I'm not working as much I'm able to live life a little bit more fuller than I was then and instead of living life for the moment I try to live it for the future, if you can understand, if that's understandable. It's it's hard to, uh, it's hard to, when you have that uh, over your head all the time, you want to make every moment count the best you can. And uh, so you try to get the best you can out of every day. Some days are better than others, but I mean, you try every day to wake up with a positive attitude to where you can go out and do the best you can with what you have.
1: It's interesting that you say that hiking became a very big part of your life um, and going hiking with your wife was something that you've continued to do. How did and does RAILD impact your hikes? And how have you adapted so that you can still continue to do it? So at first, when I was diagnosed,
0: I couldn't, I wouldn't even phantom doing some of the hikes we do now. So We've incorporated the hiking into uh, our kind of our vacation type type deal, to where that way we stay active. And one of the big problems I had before the diagnosis was I became inactive, and um, you know, just inactivity is just the worst thing anybody can do, honestly. So once I started getting active and walking and doing stuff like that, we started planning trips and things like that around places we could go and walk. And we started I started out slow, and then we worked our way up. But prior to diagnosis, we had done a couple of, uh, you know, climbed a couple of mountains. Uh, South Dakota, they got a couple of places there and a couple of places we had gone to and we climbed. So we decided once diagnosed that we'd do more trips like that. And we start crossing some of these national parks off our bucket list, and so we—I've been blessed since then to see a lot of national parks. And I think I've pretty much got it all out of my system. Uh, we did a, a little deal not too long ago, and we both were able to make eight thousand uh, feet twice uh, in the same trip. And that was—you know—that's a big accomplishment. Of course, we posted on the social media with our, our support group, and kind of did a little. You know, we can still you can still get out and do that stuff if you try. But I mean, honestly, if I'd been younger, I'd probably been able to knock it out in about two or three hours. And it took us about six, seven hours. It was a full day deal for us. But we just took our time, uh, took enough water, and and did everything we could. And you know, just I think one of the misconceptions about being uh, with a chronic disease is, you know, you you don't want to really push it too hard. You, a lot of us lay back, sort of saying. You know, don't try to overdo it. And, and in my personal opinion, that's one of the worst things I could do. I need to push the whole heart rate as much as I can. And I need to stay active as much as I can because, uh, you know, that's what keeps me in shape. And if, if I just lay back, then, you know, it, it just don't I just don't get it done. So it's it's been fun. Uh, it's been challenging and it's not been easy in any means. And uh, but I do believe it's paid off uh, emotionally, uh, spiritually and physically for us because, you know, we're not uh, being limited by our, our ourselves, You know, we're not letting ourself be limited because of the condition. There come a day when I won't be able to do it. I might not be able to walk all the way up, but I'll still be able to walk to the trail. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, definitely understand that. I think it's...
0: It's it's really all about attitude when you get right down to it. I mean, I might not be able to do as much as I used to do, but I can still go there and take a peek kind of in a way, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. You're you're not going to let it get the better of you and you're going to make sure that you continue to push for as long as you physically can.
0: Absolutely, because if I don't push, I mean, the less active I am, the sooner. I, and this is my, with my personal feeling: the less I do, the less I will do sooner. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's that old saying: if you rest, you rust.
0: Yeah, I'm not ready to rest yet. So.
1: This might sound like a strange question, but you're obviously living the best possible life that you can do now, and you're living it with such determination, and such agency and awareness. Do you think you would be living life so fully if it hadn't been for your diagnosis?
0: I don't. I really don't. And that's the that's the really. I tell people in support groups and and uh, and when we talk and stuff like that that as strange as it seems, being diagnosed has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And as bad as I have to admit that. It is true, uh, because otherwise I'd still be doing what I was doing. And, you know, the thing about it is, is a lot of people do what they do. And I was a blue collar guy. I went to work, came home, went to work, came home. I ate too much. I, did, I really didn't do nothing healthy. And, you know, a lot of people do that up until a couple of years before they die. And now I've been given the opportunity to know what I'm up against and know what's ahead of me and know how to, you know, fight it. So, uh, you know, I I think uh, it hit me at the, in the fifties, I was in the early middle fifties. So I think kind of caught me at a good time in life. I'm not going to call it a blessing, but it's been a, it's been kind of a blessing in disguise, let's say, because my life is, as good today as it's ever been. And I feel like I'm in as good a shape as I've ever been in. And uh, my doctors will say, keep doing what you're doing. So as long as I'm doing what they want me to do, the two things I want to hear from my doctors every time I go see them, I'm happy and keep doing what you're doing.
1: (laughs) You say you want to live life a little bit harder this time around. It almost sounds like you feel like you've had a rebirth.
0: I did. And, you know, I'm a born again person, so I do believe I've been awakened. So before diagnosis is all about making money, salting something back and, you know, uh, being, you know, the blue collar guy, you know, being a work pay the bill type guy. And uh, afterwards, it really it didn't really none of that really seemed all that important to me. You know, uh, the most important thing was the. Uh, Things got more important to me, like uh, my children, my grandkids. And, and, you know, just enjoying life itself, you know. I think a lot of us get tied up in work so much that we forget that, you know, you don't need all that money, uh, a lot of money to enjoy life. I mean, there's people enjoying life every day that don't work their rear ends off all the time. Yeah, I mean, money's good, and don't get me wrong and everything, but life's good, period. You don't. You can make it good if you just have the right attitude.
1: I think that's a really perfect place for us to stop and just pause and, and look back on our discussion together. If you look back on your whole journey with pulmonary fibrosis, how would you summarize it?
0: I always have to say it had to be a new beginning from a new beginning, kind of in a way, because. It's almost like a horror story uh, turned into uh, a love story, sort of say uh, everything is uh, I appreciate everything so much more now. I care so much more deeply now. And I want to uh, I want to get back as much as I can now. Where before I was just worried about getting through the day, you know. So I don't think I've ever could really describe the feeling you get when you're told, you know, you got a disease that's going to kill you. And we don't know when it's going to kill you, but it's going to kill you. It could be quick, it could be long. And uh, it's up to you on how you want to approach it. So it really didn't make no difference when I got the word because it was all about what I was going to do, not what the disease was going to do. And it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. So once I figured out that whether I lived or I died, I wanted to make the very most out of the time I had left, everything began to change. So it's just hard to describe how, how it feels i mean i've talked to so many people and you know everybody takes it differently so the best way to take anything is you know you reflect back on it a little bit and you think well this is what i did before you know i mean your life literally is right there when they tell you this is what you got you're thinking okay well maybe a year maybe two years nobody tells you you might live 10 15 years when you get the diagnosis when I first got the diagnosis, I knew nothing. So I feel like I've been totally re-educated on life and the way the world works, you know. It's been bittersweet. That's all I can say. I mean, it's been bittersweet. You have your good days and you have your bad days, but uh the good outweighs the bad by far.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. I, I think that's a really inspiring message to end on with your perseverance and your determination to live life to the fullest, having been through what you've been through. And hopefully that'll be a message to other people going through a similar journey um, and those that just need that sparkle, that inspirational voice to help them keep going. So thank you for sharing your incredible journey.
0: No No promise You've you got some good questions out of me, so yeah, it feels good. I, I hope it does help somebody.
1: Next time, I'll be joined by Cheryl, who has sarcoidosis with interstitial lung disease. She'll be taking us through her story of how her family and her faith helped her find the strength and determination to ensure that the disease wouldn't control her journey through pulmonary fibrosis. To always get the latest episode, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.